Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the Ball Film Podcast. I'm here today with Nick Alford and Sam Atkinson, and we're doing something a little bit new. We're having a discussion based on a series of films that we watched recently. So over the last few weeks, the three of us have gone over a list of films, 12 in total, some of the greatest films of all time, some critically acclaimed films, some films that we personally love that we wanted to show each other. So we're going to discuss them all. Sam, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I've 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 just begun work, so my life now has schedule again, uh, which is nice. Um, but yes, I I miss our film days. They seem like they already seem like a, a a blissful little thing that happened in the past that I'll be nostalgic about. It was good, and it only happened about a week ago. But you know what? It was great. Yep, I I look back on those days with just rose-tinted glasses, hazy, dreamy <laughs> days. It's like I'm a 50-year-old man thinking back on glory days at university, which in some ways I am. Nick, how are you? Mm. I'm I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm I'm trying to sort of make the most of the last month um that I've got at Warwick. Uh, I'm trying to use the library as much as I can to get out DVDs and Blu-rays <laughs> for films I've not seen before. So I've just taken out uh, Tokyo Story and Citizen Kane on uh, both of your recommendations. Uh, so I look forward to watching those this week. Oh, nice. I mean, Citizen Kane excellent. is like a, as Sam says, excellent choices. Citizen Kane is like a classic must-watch mm. film. That's a that's just a non-negotiable. If you're into film, you kind of have to see it. Even if you don't like it, you just, you've just got to have an opinion on it. And Tokyo Story is a its hugely critically acclaimed when BFI did their best films of all time poll. I think the directors voted it their favorite of all time, but overall it was the third film on the list, third best. Incredible film, very underseen. You will cry at the end. It is a guarantee. I hope you love it. <laughs> well, now that we've established you are both well, Time to discuss the list. I thought I'd quickly run through the actual films that we watched and then we can start talking about them in the order that we watched them. So the films were Breathless, Apocalypse Now, Peeping Tom, Persona, A Matter of Life and Death, Shadow of a Doubt, With Nail and I, A Clockwork Orange, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Metropolis, and The Long Goodbye. Now, Breathless was a film that I'm afraid Sam didn't watch with us uh, i think sam might have been busy that day so it was just to watch uh for me and nick um i had seen it before a few times uh i i've considered myself a big fan of it it's my second favorite god art after lima pre i think it's incredibly cool it's breezy i love the music i love the style i love the acting i think it's an incredible film in terms of its importance for cinema in terms of its use of jump cut and so on and so forth um certain shots just stay with me that slow tracking shot around the travel agents that that shot that goes up the Champs-Élysées and back where you first meet Patricia it's very sexy it's very fun and it just feels very carefree uh, it, it feels like a, a weird summer day of adventure and that's why I like it but it's typically French typically cool massively important to cinema Nick what do you think of it um I really enjoyed it as you say um Obviously, the jump cuts and everything—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's not your your standard experience. But uh, no, I really liked it. And um, unlike a lot of films from the '60s, I felt like those jump cuts worked. I, a lot of films from um, that sort of period—I mean, I—I just give an example. So, Doctor No, um, which came out two years later, that's got jump cuts. But the jump cuts in that film feel a bit lazy. It, it feels like they just didn't shoot the scene properly and they've just tried to fix it with 
kind of lazy editing, whereas every cut in Breathless works. Um, so I think the editing's really good. Um, I like the story. I think that's pretty good. Um, the characters are really memorable. The music is great. Um, as you say, it's 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 very very it's very French. It's very much kind of of its time, um, but it's great. And in some ways, it feels um, had it, it, it's. It, I don't want to say a travel log, but but it feels like it in, very much captures the kind of the the essence of of that time and place. And I absolutely love it. I, I know that some people have said, oh, you know, it's got, a, is it a bit pretentious and everything? But no, I really liked it. I thought it was a really good film. I, I went in thinking, well, suspecting that I would like it. And I came out knowing that I liked it. So um, yeah, really good film. Really enjoyed it. I like your point about how it encapsulates a time and a place. I think one of the greatest things cinema can do is save a certain environment and a tone and a place and Breathless does that with the Paris of the 1960s. I think even though it might have been shot in 1959, Breathless captures Paris of the 60s forever. It's always there. If you ever want to see what, you know, a day walking around, going into cinemas, beating up people and running away from cops after committing murder was like, if you're a Parisian citizen of the 1960s, then there you are, Breathless. Now, I've just realized that when naming that list, there was one film... I didn't mention and we will get to that in a minute now the first film that we watched all together the three of us together the soy boys reunited that was the name of our old radio show people were listening to soy boys on warwick raw fm <laughs> the first film we all watched together was apocalypse now um if i'm right in thinking i was the only one of us that actually seen it before we all watched it together um Sam, you haven't spoken yet. What do you think of Apocalypse Now? I haven't spoken yet. No, it's almost a relief. Uh, <laughs> um, Apocalypse Now. It's it's my my thoughts on this are interesting. Um, I watched it. I think more so maybe than any of these. Like, actually, no, not more so than any of these. But like, I was just sitting there thinking, this is like functionally a great movie. Um, like I was saying that and I was thinking like in every way that people think like a great like great like capital G great like, everyone thinks like a great movie is a great movie like Apocalypse Now is sort of very much that like it's a sort of film that could have only been made in the late 70s um, for so many different reasons like the fact that it has like so many of these like late new Hollywood things going on um, and the fact of how like overly extravagant but yet sort of real is um, in terms of the performances in terms of the music in terms of what it's kind of going for like just generally like as a you know if you just take the film as sort of a metaphor like that kind of means it only really um works like being made in the late 70s like in, in, in every single sort of way like it's very much like a great movie um but the thing with sort of how i watched it was like this is kind of a this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout all of these, um, which I hope to get you boys talking about, or is like especially uh, you Frank who watched a lot of these films growing up. Uh, it's like I think it all sort of depends on when you first watched them. Like so for me, like even though I could sit there and think like, oh, the spectacle in Apocalypse Now is really um, sort of stunning uh, and amazing, like it didn't like it didn't hit me. It didn't like I wasn't sitting there thinking like, 
you know, properly sitting there like, oh my God, in the same sort of way where someone else might. If I had to pin down a perfect age for actually watching it, I'd probably say it'd be around 16. I think 16, you're about the right sort of like, you have the right sort of brain chemistry to make all the spectacle in this film like hit you. But it, it's not to take away from how great the film actually is. Because again, in all these sort of like other ways, um, and even the spectacle itself, there's nothing really sort of wrong with it. It's just that it didn't particularly hit me in the right way. But like, it doesn't detract from the fact that it's still sort of functionally perfect. Uh, and if someone was to say like, oh, this is my favorite movie, or, or I think this is, you know, this is a masterpiece of, of the late 70s, um, then I really couldn't disagree per se. But like, um, it just kind of, a lot of it didn't hit me. But there's, but I really loved, uh, this is going to, uh, Martin Sheen. Because you told me to watch um, Badlands as well, which I watched a lot outside of this. And through watching both of these, I really have sort of, discovered how great Martin Sheen was in the 70s um, and this is I think if I had to pick a favorite performance maybe out of any of these like it'd probably be Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now um, but yeah those are I, I, don't, I don't know if I have much of substance to say about it but that's sort of how I felt about it. That's very interesting I like your point about the fact that there is an age when films hit you harder when the brain chemistry is right and the spectacle and everything collides in your head in order to produce one of the best film watching experiences you can have. Uh, Nick, what did you think of the film? Well, um, I suppose my my thoughts on the film were quite, quite similar to Sam's in that it's a very good film. It's it's very well made and it's, it's a very enjoyable experience. It is a great film, but there's just something about it that for me, not that it didn't work, it's that it just didn't go the extra step which is a weird thing to say because when, um, so I ranked all the films that we watched and Apocalypse Now is in the bottom half. That's not a criticism of Apocalypse Now. It's just, I thought the other films for me did more. So I feel bad for putting it so low down on my list, um, but that's not because the film is bad. It's just, it's really, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to put into words. It, 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 it's not that the film didn't satisfy me because it did, it's a great film. It's just watching it, I just think, yeah, it's it, it, it's fine. It's functional. It, 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 I'm making it sound like I didn't like the film. I really did enjoy it. But there's just, whereas some of the others on this list, I looked at and immediately thought, that's beautiful. Or, oh, wow, they, you know, they did that. To me, Apocalypse Now, I don't know, perhaps maybe it's it's the most sort of, just because it's the most blockbuster of all of them. Um, it, it, the others, a lot of the ones higher on my list, they felt like they had a special certain quality to them, which which this film was maybe lacking. But no, it's a very good film. I mean, there's some great moments in it. Robert Duvall is great. Um, some of the shots are just really impressive. I mean, I really did enjoy it. I feel bad for saying it's in the bottom half, but I did enjoy it. Well, there you have it. I mean, it's interesting that you and Sam are quite aligned on your view on it. Because I think it is a film that has such a totemic reputation that maybe it can't quite ever live up to how loved it is, generally. I mean, what Sam said about being the right age to watch it, I think is interesting. Because I first saw the film when I was about maybe, maybe actually 16, 15 or 16, that kind of age, towards the end of secondary school. And it didn't hit me at all. I remember watching it and thinking, 
this is impressive, but it just it doesn't it didn't do anything particularly for me. I, I preferred other war films, preferred other Vietnam war films for, for that matter. Um, it just didn't hit me at all. And then I rewatched it in university during one of the lockdowns when I was in my room by myself. I was drinking a lot of scotch because I've been given some scotch for Christmas. And I was alone in my room watching Apocalypse <laughs> Now. And it was a proper stars align kind of moment where the watching experience was so good that I ended up watching it about three more times that month um, and then watching it again with you two. Um, I, mm. I think it was something about that opening where Martin Sheen is alone in his room, he's drinking heavily and he's PTSD scarred and he's seeing the images of war play out on his mind. He's seeing the helicopters fly across the jungles of Vietnam. He sees the fire burning the trees and then as the rotors of the blades stay lingering in his mind it cuts to the ceiling fan the idea that those memories of war are always with him he's going to see them wherever he is and he can't escape his room is like a prison you feel the heat and the humidity of it he's he's undressed he's i think he's basically naked in his room he's breaking the mirror with his hand there's blood all over it's this brilliant scene of loneliness and madness and and trauma that opens the film and that is my favorite part of the entire film that opening sequence it's wordless apart from i think a tiny little bit of voiceover narration it's all through imagery and you understand exactly who this man is and exactly where the film is going to take you. There's a haunting moment where you get this little flash forward when he's seeing these images of the war for a brief second, this image of fire transforms and you see him at the end of the film where he's caked in mud and water and sort of bathed in the flames of what will become Colonel Kurtz's temple. We find out later. But just for that split second, you see where his path is going to take him. And it feels like in that split second in his room, he has this epiphany of where the madness has taken him already and where the inevitable destination of it will be. He will become this sort of ultimate godlike killer. And for me, that's the that's the, the peak of the film. I love that so much. If people haven't seen it, um, it's an adaptation of Comrade's Heart of Darkness, but it takes the action from the Congo and it transposes it to the Vietnam War. So it's about a soldier that has to go on this mission downriver to find this renegade troop, Kurtz, and kill him. Sam, what do you want to say? Now you've mentioned that, I will say this. I had to read Heart of Darkness not too long ago through doing it for a university uh, module. And I will say I like Apocalypse Now a lot more than I like Heart of Darkness. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, I would I would almost go as far as to say that I think Heart of Darkness isn't even a good book. I would I would almost just go as far as to say it's blandly mediocre at best. Now I've tried to read it and I've failed. I'm I'm mm. very, very poor at reading. I often give up. Um it's a rare book that really takes me to the end. And I have to say mm. I'm in deep sympathy with you. I found it very difficult to read. I just found it pretty dull. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's 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 a dullness that's a problem because like it's we were reading it on a on a module where we were doing um like modernist books we were doing like Joyce we were doing Wolf we were doing all these people with such like exciting and interesting styles who were so transgressive and everything like this and then reading Conrad it was like it, it was all just so superficial it was all just so sort of like. It was so dull. How can a book that's like that short be that excruciatingly dull? Like at least like a lot of the nineteenth century books that are like, you know, long and boring still like written quite nicely. Like this was like anyway, that book's boring. At least we got a great film out of it. I mean that's Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the best that you can say. 
Yeah. I've talked about Apocalypse Now at length on uh, the favorite films episode with Dom, where we both talk about our favorite films. So I, I could go on and on and on about it. But it is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, it might actually have been knocked out of my top 10 just by some of the recent watches I've done, which I will be set, I'll be revealing it all on um, when we continue our best films of the decade series, particularly when we get to the 1970s. Uh, but it remains an incredible film. The spectacle of it works for me. I think the ending is incredible as well. That final assassination where you have the sacrifice of the water buffalo coinciding with the killing of Kurtz. And it's this idea of life leaving and then being reborn in this figure of Willard, standing there covered in mud, bathed in blood and flame. It's this sort of primeval idea of violence building you and making you. It destroys him in one sense, it, re it rebirths him in another. There's something about that that just really appeals to me. It's a strange image and I'm not sure if the politics of it are completely pure, um, but it works. I think it really works. I think it's a fantastic film. People complain that the ending is a bit messy and anticlimactic. And I'm, I'm sympathetic with that view. That's definitely how I felt when I was younger. But now it's just the pure spectacle and awe of it hits me so hard that it leaves me breathless by the end. I love it. <laughs> so that's my take on the film. Uh, Nick did briefly mention that we'd all rank the films. And I thought that would be a good ending. Once we talk about all of them, we can go through our rankings and list what we thought on all of them. So that's Apocalypse Now. The next film on the list was Peeping Tom. Now, if people aren't familiar with who Michael Powell is, Michael Powell is one of the greatest British directors of all time. He's criminally underrated. People don't talk about him enough at all. And um, Powell and Pressburger are kind of known as filmmakers if you maybe take a, a film studies course or if you're really into older British films from the 1940s particularly. Um, but Michael Powell is a true talent. He had an incredible visual flair. He was always transgressive. He was always subversive. There's always this idea of male control and perversity, kind of like Hitchcock, but perhaps less violent and threatening and a bit more sort of serene. It's a strange way to describe male perversity, but it's less about the threat of it in his earlier films and more about how it fits in with a community and an environment. But by 1960, he could go full on threatening, full on violent, and he makes Peeping Tom. Now, this is a true favorite of mine. Nick and Sam hadn't seen it before we watched it together. And I was absolutely begging them to watch it because it's a film that I think everyone should see if they haven't heard of it before. It's a great going blind watch. Um, so I thought I'd let you two talk about this first. Nick, what did you think of Peeping Tom? Oh, I think it's a great film. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, I, again, like with Breathless, I suspected that I was going to like it as we went in. And, and I did. I mean, the, the colour in particular is so rich and gorgeous. It's beautiful, beautifully photographed. I mean, it just looks absolutely stunning. But the whole, um, you know, the story being told um, is really great. And um, there's, there's, there's little moments in this film that I just think that's great. There's a, there's a bit at the end, there's, um, you get a detail that's revealed about how these murders were committed. And and it's like oh, it's such a it's such a brilliant twist because it's dark but it really adds to the, like the story. Um, there's some really dark comic moments in this story as well, um, which which you know it, it, I suppose it would be very easy for this sort of film to just become a bit um, gratuitous, but it doesn't. It, it it strikes this balance very well, in my opinion. Um, I think it's a great film. I think as well the acting is really good. The the murderer, I think um, there's a great performance there because he's he's very um, disturbing, 
and uh, you know there's something very odd going on but also not so much that you can believe that his love interest would would you know dismiss him or not take any interest it's a very clever and well-made film um and i suppose as i suppose as well really um maybe not to the same extent of breathless but whereas breathless really captures 1960s paris this for me really captures like 1960s britain um and oh it's such a it's such a good film i i thought i would like it but i didn't realize i'd love it and i it's just it's great i it's a wonderful wonderful film very dark but very well made i came out of it very very satisfied I was incredibly pleased that you were satisfied by it. In case people haven't seen the film, Peeping Tom follows the story of a character called Mark Lewis. He's a lonely, introverted man. Uh, He owns a large house that he rents out to other people and he keeps films upstairs. You find out very early on in the film that the films are films of him murdering women. What he does is he has this special camera that he's rigged up with a tripod where one of the legs of the tripod extends and it's a blade. And what he does is he films the last moments of these women's life as he kills them. He's a serial killer. This is who the man is. Um, But throughout the film, we follow his burgeoning relationship with a young woman who lives in the building, who rents out a room from him. And it's this slow, really creepy descent into the mind of a killer as he continues to kill, but continues to become closer to this woman. Where is it going to end up? And what I love about the film, and I'll get into a lot of details about what I love about it later, is that the romance is so tender and so sweet. It's not even that creepy. It could be far creepier than it is. And a lot of scenes, she genuinely cares for him. There's not the sense that she's being threatened or coerced. She enters the relationship with him very willingly because she likes him. And I think that kind of makes the horror tragic rather than just scary because it's destroying what could be a very genuine and very warm and loving relationship. And the ending in particular, um, which I might have to get to in a minute, is this brilliant, perfect, tragic note. It just ends on such an image of destruction and isolation that it really gets to me. The first time I saw this film, I was alone in my room. It was the night that I had found out I'd become the editor of Bore Film. It was the first time I saw this. And I watched this film. I got it out from the library. I watched it all the way through, and it left me just gasping and silent at the end of it. I, I couldn't speak. I was so shocked by what I'd seen. I'd heard about it for years, but it left me completely wordless. It's a fantastic British film. It's one of the greatest of all British films, I think. And it's definitely the best British horror film I've ever seen. Peeping Tom is a true cornerstone of 1960s cinema. It deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as films like Psycho. I think actually I might secretly prefer it to Psycho just because it's a bit more idiosyncratic in its own in its Britishness. Psycho is a very American slasher film, even though it's directed by a Brit. But Peeping Tom is such a seedy, strange, scary portrait of London. Uh, I mentioned with Dom that this film alongside Naked by Mike Lee might be the best depictions of London I've ever seen in a film because London terrifies me. And I think this and Naked get it across very well. Sam, what did you think of Peeping Tom? Oh, there's so much to say, isn't there? Um, I'll start on Michael Powell generally because we've got another Michael Powell film to talk about. Yeah. Um, But just on his uh, influence, though, I really, uh, even though I've only seen two of his films and we watched a little, we like watched a scene from a third one. Um, I really do sort of agree that he's probably the great British auteur who's not talked about. And in trying to sort of like pin down his style, like it's it's interesting because like on the one hand, he can do stuff like Peeping Tom where it just feels like he goes full in like Hitchcock. I love it. It's not like, you know, it is idiosyncratic, of course. 
but like you know it screams hitchcock but then on the other end it, it feels a bit like a like victor fleming or michael Kurt, like you know it feels like a classic hollywood movie like um and and like all of the two films we saw at least are all exceedingly sort of sentimental but in the best sort of way so like even though peeping tom is transgressive in like um so many sort of ways like it, it, it's weird amongst 60s films because it is still so like it's still so emotional and how it puts everything across it's still so like sentimental about its emotions um and which is which is fascinating i think um peep, yeah peeping tom um specifically though on ter- in terms of the actual question of what's the best uh you know british 60s like the best representation of london in the 60s like because it really is a period that you know it just seems uh you know every time it's on film it's exciting um i wouldn't say it's my favorite i'd say i like repulsion um a bit more like the first time i saw repulsion and um, also by roman polanski i was I say no it's difficult to throw too much praise out without sounding uh, uh, difficult, but uh, <laughs> the the cinematography and repulsion the first time I saw it, I think it's all shot around uh, West London. It's all shot around Kensington, I think. Is that some West London? I don't know. Um, but um, that kind of grabbed me a bit more. But Peeping Tom is still uh, it's 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 fantastic. Um, it really sort of is. Um, gosh, I don't wait. What? There's so much to talk about with it though. Um, yeah, the lead performance was the lead performance was fantastic. Um, um, the colors, I don't think. Again, we've got another Michael Power film to talk about, which I like more. Um, although we did see this one first, um, so it's hard to just not repeat things I liked about that other film more. Um, yes, I think probably the reason the if I had to sell it in sort of one sentence, I would probably just go for the idiosyncratic bit i'd be like you won't ever see a film like peeping tom where it's not just like oh it's a hitchcock film or like oh it's a 60s british film it's like and oh it's a beautiful british technical film um it's like it's the fact that it's all these things kind of put together if i had to be disparaging about it i'd probably say that like um it might just be um because of the fact that we also saw a hitchcock film which I think I might have liked a bit more than this. Um, I think Hitchcock's films are slightly more maybe detailed in their actual themes and how they sort of play out and scripting. Um, so if it was just to be compared to some of the straight Hitchcock classics, um, I'd probably say that I like those more. But for Peeping Tom, like the actual fact that it's about the medium of the cinema and the camera, and the cam- camera is so sort of, prominent throughout like it's it's that's kind of where a lot of the they're the details that really stand out about it like it's rare to see a film from this period like you'd see it a bit later for like you know some of the french new wave stuff i guess some of it was actually coming out at the same time as this but like it's the fact that it's the camera that's so prominent here and the fact that michael powell is sort of like putting himself into these situations so like with the there's a bit where correct me if I'm wrong but I think uh, when they're showing the 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 home movies uh, uh, that were like integral to the protagonist's like uh, like you know psyche 
it's like, is it Michael uh, Powell and his son, or is it him and his dad? Uh, in the home movie section, you see mm. the main character as a child and his father, and the father is Michael Powell, and the, mm. the actor playing the child is Michael Powell's actual son, and they're filming it mm. inside Michael Powell's actual home. It's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous thing to happen, but it's, I think that's probably my favorite thing. Like, once, I don't know if I found out about that during or before or after, but like, I think you might have told us after even, but I was like, oh, that's actually genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, they're my thoughts. Pretty good. Wonderful. I mean, I, 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 I completely agree. I think this is an excellent film. Horror as a genre isn't usually my favorite thing. I, I, this, this, it's a rare horror film that really captures me and transports me and makes me love cinema even more but this is one of them any film that leaves me with my jaw dropping the entire runtime because i think a film can't be this subversive this daring and have come out in the year 1960 i mean 1960 is a watershed year for cinema anyway that's the year that breathless la dolce vita la ventura peeping tom and psycho all come out that's a remarkable range of films and a remarkable range of incredibly significant films to come out in one year but I think what Peeping Tom does is it combines this visceral, really quite nasty horror with deep, profound sympathy with its serial killer lead, who you'd like. I think that's one of the scariest things about the film. You'd like him. He's not, a, he is, he's a terrible person, but he's not an unsympathetic character. You, you relate to him and you like him. You see him as this lonely, troubled man who's had this horrible, abusive childhood. And he externalizes it with these violent acts. He's developed an absolute perverse love of the camera which of course is a very interesting thing if you're looking at the auteur you know the idea that the director is expressing his own love of cinema through this violent character he's a he's a complete misogynist and yet he's incredibly tender and loving towards the one woman in his life that is this sort of romantic uh relationship that he has with her that there are a few moments in the film that really stand out to me um I think my favorite moment in the entire film might be the first meeting that you have between Anna Massey's character and uh, Mark Lewis, where he's walking up the stairs towards his room in this building and she invites him to, his, to her birthday. He looks down, he says he can't come. She's called back into the room. And just as she starts to leave, he looks back at her and says, happy birthday. And he says it really quietly. And you can tell in that moment that he's in love with her. It, it, the film doesn't have to scream it at you. You can just see in his eyes that he's, and he's been in love with her for a while. You can just tell in that one moment, everything is communicated perfectly. I mean, the only other film that I can think of that does that so well, and I kind of have to mention it every single podcast because it's one of my favorites, is Kubrick's Lolita. That first moment when you see James Mason look at Lolita, and it's a scary moment because of the film's subject matter. You can tell he's obsessed with her. And I think that Peeping Tom does that incredibly well. And then when she comes up to his room, and she starts to invite herself in and you slowly learn for the first time that it's Mark Lewis's house. He owns it. She's a, she's a tenant. She rents the house from him. That power dynamic in that relation, in that relationship between them, where she is asking him questions, he's completely on the back foot and yet he owns the house and she has to kind of coax that information out of him. That's fascinating to me. That's really, really, it's a subversion of gender roles for the time. And it clues you in on who this character is. He's a powerful man, but doesn't want to acknowledge it. He's scared of his own power, which of course relates to his career as a serial killer. One, for one last word on the film, it completely destroyed Powell's reputation in Britain. He had to go off to Australia and start making films there. Like they're a weird Marvin Age of Consent, which I'm very interested in. Age of Consent stars James Mason. So a film with Michael Powell and James Mason is 
for me just cinematic heaven waiting to be seen um but it was such a destructive film for him and his career in Britain. What I find fascinating is that the star of his film, The Red Shoes, which might actually be my favorite Michael Powell film, Moira Shearer is in the film. She is um, a, one of Mark Lewis's victims. She's a dancer that he murders. And so in the scene where Mark Lewis murders Moira Shearer, what Michael Powell is doing is he's violently killing off the lead star of one of his most beloved films in this grimy horror film which it's, it's just this perfect comment on how the film destroyed his own career. It's, it's a willfully destructive film. It's like he was just, it's like he just said to himself, okay, I'm just throwing everything at this and I don't care what happens. And I think that intoxicating attitude that he took to the film is still present there today. I love it. Any last words on Peeping Tom from either of you? Brilliant. Well, Peeping Tom, incredible film. If you haven't seen it, please do check it out. And I, and I will say to both of you, um, some Powell and Pressburger films to check out if you want to see some more. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, The Red Shoes, and A Canterbury Tale. Fantastic films. Some of my all-time favourites. Now that's Peeping Tom. On to one in which I think we differed a bit in agreement. Um, we split a bit on this one. Persona. Now, Sam and I are incredibly enthusiastic about Persona, and I think Nick is a little less so. Nick, would you like to tell us what you thought about the film? Well, that was interesting. Obviously, we'll get onto the full rankings later, but I was just looking where Persona and all of our rankings came and um, spoilers, I suppose, but um, it's it's lower down on mine than it is on, on both of yours. Um, again, I feel bad for it being so low, but, you know, a, a film has to be there. Um, it's a bit like Apocalypse Now. It, it, it's, it's, yeah, I, feel, I feel bad, but, but it's, it's, I think the other films do, they just appeal to me a bit more um but it's very good it's very good i i think the the moment that bergman won my respect was there's a very um there's a scene where this woman is talking about this encounter that she had at a beach um and she ended up getting pregnant because of it and she feels this kind of guilt because she enjoyed the moment and in a lot of films, they would have gone to a flashback or, you know, they would have had big music swelling up. Um, and in this scene, it's just one woman walking around the room, sitting down, you know, slightly crying, just telling this story. And you've got to be really confident if you're going to do it like that, that your, you know, your actress can, can do that scene well. And she does, and it's brilliant because of it. Sometimes in movies, you know, you need a scene where, you know, oh, get get the violins out, and you know, um, you know, have uh, big flashy effects. This isn't. It's very intimate. It's very personal. Um, that scene for me, I I thought, yeah, all right, yeah, <laughs> all right, Bergman, you're a, you're a great director. I can believe it now. Um, I mean, overall, I think. I feel bad. I think the re the reason, the, okay, let me put it this way. This is a film I would say I appreciate more than I like in the sense of, I recognize that it's great. It's just for me, it doesn't, it's, it's not a film that I would think, oh, I can rewatch this anytime. Um, I, I, again, I, I'm, I, can't quite put my finger on why it doesn't maybe appeal to me as much as it, it as it does to you two. I think maybe it's just the fact I'm not a massive fan of 
films which kind of end on a um i don't know maybe i'm just not a film of films that don't particularly wrap things up very well um i mean i watched um american psycho the other day just uh, just by myself and that film also ends on a oh but what actually happened no and i'd it, maybe it's just personal preference i'm not massive on films that do that um but overall um it's a very very good film um i really enjoyed it i maybe as not mu- as much as you two but it's very good it's very very good and i would i would say to anyone who hasn't seen it you know please if you can track down a copy you know please watch it it's very good there you go nick's take on persona now if you haven't actually seen persona it's kind of difficult to provide a slight description of it, um, but I'll do my best. It's about a nurse that develops a very close emotional relationship with a patient. Now, the patient is played by uh, Liv Ullman. Took me a minute to remember that. It played by Liv Ullman, and she's completely mute. She's a mute character. She refuses to speak. It's a decision she has made, and the nurse kind of has to coax speech out of her. That's the relationship that starts the film. From then on, You've kind of just got to see it and take yourself on the ride. Um, if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you'll have heard Sam and I talk about it at length before in our art films episode. Uh, Sam, am I right in thinking that it's your favourite film ever? It is my favourite film ever. Uh, I watched it when we did that uh, podcast. I'd only watched it once, and it wasn't under the best circumstances. Um, there's actually a tweet out there somewhere of me watching it for the first time, and it's open on half of my laptop screen. Uh, whilst the other half is maybe you know doing something else um so I felt like until I saw it again recently I I really didn't think I had the like necessary authority to say that it was my favorite film or the best film ever made but now I've seen it again you know I'll say that I'll say I really think it's the greatest achievement in all of cinema I think it's absolutely stunning I think it's you know if I had to just point at something and be like this. These are the grandiose statements. I'll get we can get into details, but like, uh, <laughs> you know, if I had to sort of point at cinema and what you can do with the symbolic power of cinema as a medium, uh, in the same way you might point to a Joyce for literature, uh, I'd point to 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 this for cinema. I think it's absolutely remarkable. I I I I wouldn't cut a single second of it. I think every single second of it. Um, you know, is is some of the best stuff that's ever been done ever in cinema. I I love it. But yeah, but I can I, I don't even know where I start. <laughs> like um mm-hmm. go on, go on. Oh I didn't have anything else to say. Please point me somewhere. Persona's a film that I love as well. Um Sam and I have both ranked it incredibly highly on our list. Uh, Bergman is a director that I admire quite greatly anyway. His films Autumn Sonata, Fanny and Alexander, Wild Strawberries from Life of the Marionettes, which is a bit of an underrated one. The list goes on. They're all great. But Persona is the first film that I ever saw by him, and it's the one that remains my favourite because I think the mystery of it is just so enticing. It doesn't tell you everything about the world that it displays. It doesn't tell you everything about the characters. It invites you into this world, and it lets you sort of luxuriate in it and explore it. Uh, Sam and I talked about it at length before, but I think it's a, a film about neurotics. It's about two people exploring the insides of their own minds their their fears and their desires it's about the fear over childbirth and fear over motherhood 
and fear over sexual relationships. And it all kind of combines and comes together in this strange, heady, intoxicating atmosphere. Sam? Um, yeah, I feel like, because a lot of people, like when you watch it a lot of the time, a lot of the response uh, you, you get is like, oh, well, I didn't really like get it though. Like I sat there, I thought, oh, it's a good movie, but I didn't really understand it. But I think it's a movie that's kind of almost entirely understood by the, by through the understanding of the body. And I think like, uh, like in so many different ways, but I think if I'd summarize why I think it's really great, because like, you know, a lot of other movies just sort of like have themes that I think they're good at. It's not just, I'm like, it's, it's, I think what makes this so interesting is whilst there's all the sort of thematic depth sort of going on in what you're being told and what you're not being told. If you just look at it like a, if you just look at it, you know, visually, like visually, it's entirely about the body as well. Like this is sort of, I think the almost uncontested, I think Bergman is just the best person to ever shoot the human body on film. Like I think that, like, you know, Liv Ullman uh, is in a few Bergman films and, and she's always the best person that like keeps, he, he's shot and she always looks like absolutely remarkable. Um, but this is sort of why I think it goes from like a great movie to the greatest ever movie, because like, it's not just the fact that it's exploring these because like a lot of the stuff that it's kind of like a lot of the Freudian stuff that it's sort of about was starting to come into more vogue like in the 60s so in that sort of like in, in that sort of plain sense you can kind of see how it might be a film that could only be made in 66 65 66 um, yeah 66 yeah um so in, in that sense like oh it's obviously a film uh um of its uh, time um, but no, but it's sort of, it's almost just, a, it's just a lot better than that though. Like, it's like, I just think it's, it's, it's uncontested because the way that it sort of gets this depth across is at no point does it really lecture you. Like, I think I watched a interview. I might've been a Woody Allen interview to be fair. So I will get onto the difficulties talking about Woody Allen later. Um, but he did, he had like a 20 minute interview where he just talked about why I loved Ingmar Bergman so much. And he was saying, it's not just the fact that his films are also remarkably complex and have so much going on. It's also the fact that they're really quite simple. So, like, it's the fact that, like, um, you know, every, every single beat, like, is, is sort of engineered to kind of just, like, hit you. Uh, like, every single cut in a Bergman film is stunning. And every single shot, again, the fact that he shoots the human body so well like, even if you're not necessarily sure, like, oh, you know, why is she not speaking? Or, oh, who's this man at the end? Or, oh, why was there a boy at the beginning? Why does it start and end with the industrial sort of metal uh, sparks? It's like, you look, don't worry about it. Like, you can, you can get your interpretations across and everything like this. But it's almost the film that, again, Susan Sontag wrote about this film. Um, I don't know if she actually said this about this film in uh, particular, um, but the sort of point she was making um, was that, you know, she wanted to move away from just talking about films as being things that you sit there and interpret and be like, oh, see, it's actually a good movie because it all makes sense because you have to think of it all just being like uh, about this or this or this. Like, this is the prime example of even if you don't have some sort of way of, you know, putting it all together, um, under one umbrella you can look at it and be like 
this is a film that's absolutely remarkable uh and is is brimming with 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 substance i completely agree i think it's the, the substance is there the themes are there the the depth of it is there and yet you can appreciate it entirely on that just surface level of this is one of the most beautiful films ever made quite possibly the most beautiful film ever made uh, in terms of the best cinematographers ever there's a few that i always think about like uh raul Coutard, um jack cardiff uh greg toland but sven nickvist is probably the greatest who ever did it and he his his cinematography in this film is almost unbelievable how beautiful it is i mean the the two actresses bb anderson and liv allman both of whom are just luminously beautiful. They're so well photographed in this film. It's a film about the bond between them and them merging and separating their identities, clashing and colliding with each other. And you get all of that just through the way their bodies move when they interact with each other. There are a few moments in this film that stand out to me as just almost just breathtakingly beautiful. And it's the moment at the beginning where you have that bizarre montage and then it's that brilliant cut where you get this field of white that suddenly becomes a door and through the door walks B.B. Anderson in that nurse outfit. And that sort of the birth of narrative at the beginning of the film after this month, that takes my breath away every time I see it. So it's that, and it's a moment that is so understated, but so haunting and strange where you see Liv Ullman's character, Elizabeth Vogler in bed and the light in the room slowly starts to darken and darken and darken. And you just see her face until all that's left are the two pinpricks of light in her eyes. And you get this idea that this is a film about perception, it's about seeing, and it's about just, how would I even describe it? I mean, people say that the eyes are the gateway to the soul, so maybe that's the idea of the scene. Mm. Persona takes yeah, over a yeah. Go on, Sam. What I like about it is it feels like it's it's working for like a... It feels like yeah, there's, there's a level where you kind of just watch it and think, oh, it's incredibly pretty and it's incredibly sort of all these things but like kind of the best everything it always feels like the more work you put into it the more you'll get out of it um so it's it, it, it's it's really I, I i kind of think there's no sort of end to the to the amount you can sort of think about it like you can just like think you could spend all day just kind of thinking about you know everything that's just sort of happened and like trying to piece it all together and it will Every time you do that, it it kind of becomes more complete because a lot of films, yeah, like oh, this is actually you know, sure, <laughs> but like this one's like sort of just like yeah, I just think it's endlessly, endlessly just sort of like complex. I I I adore it. Well, there you go. It's a film for the ages. It's one of the films that appears on every single best film ever list with reason. It's beautiful. Mm. It's stunning. It's mysterious. It's mesmerizing. It's persona. It's fantastic. And I'm really glad that mm. I got to watch it with both of you. Um, now for the next film on our list, which is A Matter of Life and Death. This is another film by Michael Powell, but of course it's a Powell and Pressburger production rather than just Powell by himself. Um, if you haven't seen the film before, it's about an airman called Peter Carter who's flying over the English Channel, returning from a World War II era bombing mission. He starts to talk to um, a woman on the radio. She's an American living in Britain, communicating with the pilots of these planes. He falls in love with her. Uh, but he reveals to her that he doesn't have a parachute, his plane's been shot, and he's going to die. He jumps off the plane, and then he awakes on a beach. He survived it. Then you find out that the only reason he survived is because of an administrative error within heaven. This is how bizarre the film is. Um, and then you find out that he has to be brought to trial in heaven and argue that he <laughs> argue his case for remaining on Earth. And his case is, of course, that he's fallen in love 
and that he should remain on earth so that he can continue to develop his love for this woman. Now, again, yet again, this is a film I'd seen before and loved and Nick and Sam hadn't seen. Um, I thought I'd start with Sam because he's incredibly eager to discuss this film I can see already. Sam, what did you think of A Matter of Life and Death? Uh, stunning, fantastic, perfect, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> I saw it and this really doesn't happen that much. Um, but kind of, I think kind of my two favourite films that we've talked about here, maybe, or that we'll be talking about, kind of just came right next to each other. Maybe I was just having a good week, but like, <laughs> you know, Matter of Life and Death, as soon as I watched it, I was like, nah, this is, this is, this is a fantastic, beautiful, stunning movie. And like, again, it's like, yeah, Powell, Powell and Pressburger, it's like, as a, they're, they're an interesting bunch. Like their their films feel extremely sort of classical, um, but like in the sort of way where you can watch like old Hollywood movies and like the absolute best ones like are just able to hit you so emotionally. Um, so like in my mind, like um, even though Peeping Tom, you kind of compare to some of the uh, and contrast to some of the sixties uh, subversive stuff, like Matter of Life and Death is is one that's directly sort of comparable and contrastable to like Casablanca, Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, this sort of this sort of stuff. It's the strongest emotional reaction I've had since I rewatched uh, It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas, which I think is like, you know, at the kind of peak of fantastic classical Hollywood. Because even though the, a lot of these films are kind of to a formula, like um the the formula absolutely worked. Uh, but then also for Matter of Life and Death, there's so much more going on than just kind of even a lot of these great Hollywood films. Um, like it was a film made right at the end of World War Two, if not just after World War Two. And sort of the grief of World War Two is so kind of apparent here. Like you kind of worry that watching a film that was kind of just made after or kind of made in that sort of time would be overly like patriotic, overly sort of like, come on boys let's go fight some nazis like you know you just watch it and you think you know it's a bit sort of cringe inducing but i think that like another film i really love is um hiroshima mon amour and this is very comparable to that in that i think they both just capture this sense of unalienable like like national grief like so fantastically like the metaphor of again there's another film where it's like sort of the metaphor of it absolutely just like holds up like what this is about it's not just about this one soldier it's about all of the men that were sort of lost during this war and i'm not i'm not even crazy on like war movies or really any of this i don't think there's really that many war movies that i really love um i think what maybe appealed to me personally about this one is it's not one that kind of took place during the fighting like it's about the fighting it's about this like kind of unfilmable like hugely tragic event but it all kind of takes place like on the margins of it. Um, so in that sort of aspect, I think it's just a fantastic classic film. But then like a bit like with the Oz, like there's a lot more going on that's making it like, that makes it transgressive um, or makes it sort of stand out even for its period, apart from just the fact that it's very good. Um, like firstly, the cinematography, uh, it's one of the most, again, like Persona, one of the most beautiful looking films I've ever seen. Like um, how it actually works 
is that it's about half and half. Half of it takes place uh, in on on Earth, and sort of half of it takes place in heaven. And how you might expect this to usually happen is that oh, the bits in heaven will be done in glorious Technicolor, and then the bits back on Earth, you know, boring old Earth, will be uh, done in uh, black and white. But they they reverse this, uh, and then even these even though these rules have been set, they're not they're not completely a lot like. Sometimes there'll be bits in heaven that are partially in color, or there'll be bits on Earth that are kind of in black and white, and there'll be transition and transitions between them. But by God, it's like the black and white and the color are both sort of like the best examples that you could want for how good both of these can look uh, in in cinema. Um, like it's just it's you know it's it's a film that I'd want to if I had kids. It's a kind of a film I'd want to show them. Because like it's it's kind of like the closest I can think to a film like actually feeling like magical, um, but even like yeah, but on the on the fact that it's like a film about sort of the grief of the war, like um, even in its more like pointed moments where you worry like oh you know might not might start saying stuff that's a bit objectionable here, like it's actually like it's basically every single line holds up like remarkably well even now. And like sort of commentary that it had on sort of what World War Two was, why it happened, and what sort of role uh, Anglo America and like the West sort of had within it. Like it's all it's 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 it's, it's incredibly sort of nuanced, and like the sort of discussions, everything that go down, um, are are remarkable. Like it's not. I feel like Persona is like a film that you sh- if you the more you think about it, the better it is. But Matter of Life and Death feels like a film that was just made by someone who did think about it a lot. And, like, it's all kind of there for you to see. But I think the commentary on it is sort of... It's remarkable. Like, I would say it's a film that they'd make now, but it's a film that only still sort of works because it was made in the immediate aftermath and all the emotion that's within it is so raw. Um, But then, just on top of this, like... uh, the performances are absolutely remarkable. Like I think uh, everyone in it is. What's the name of the the lead guy? David Niven. David Niven. I can see why David Niven's one of the most famous British actors to ever live. He's so. You see, as soon as he shows up, you're like, this man is endlessly like, imitatable. This man is like so iconic immediately. Um, but everyone's everyone's fantastic in it. Um, and even when the film is transgressive, it's not making a point of its transgressions. It just kind of feels like they, that's just how it is. That's just sort of what the film is. Like, um, no, I just think it's, I think it's, again, I think it's remarkably good. I watched it and immediately I was like, nope, this is one of my favorite films. I don't think it would change. Um, I think I saw it at the exact, I don't, I think maybe I either, I either would have wanted to have watched it like at this moment now. Or like when I was ten, because <laughs> I feel like you know, it'd be yeah, it'd be one of those films I'd show a kid and be like, "We're watching this every Christmas." <laughs> all yeah. those films. A Matter of Life and Death is stunning. It's one of Pamela Pressburg's very best films. It's beautiful. Jack Cardiff already mentioned when I was talking about the best cinematographers photographed this film, and he did an incredible job. The use of Technicolor in the film. Interestingly, when they shot the heaven scenes, they shot it in Technicolor, but then they drained the color out. 
and that's why it has that remarkably sort of luminous pearly look to it when you look at the scenes in heaven i mean you mentioned david niven i've got to give a huge shout out to roger livesey playing dr frank reeves here who is remarkably good roger livesey is a fantastic british actor and unfortunately most of his performances are just uh in paul and pressburger films he was in many many other films but a lot of those films just aren't really talked about or known i haven't seen any of them but the really well-known films he's in the paul and pressburger films his performances in all of them are stunning i mean there's uh, a few in particular it's this the life and death of kind of blimp where he plays the title role and uh i know where i'm going and he's just incredible in all of them i could go on talking about this all day but i really want to hear what nick's thoughts are on it so nick what did you think I mean, put simply, it's very good, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a simple sentence, but it's very true. Um, I mean, obviously, I think uh, Sam has talked at length about um, you know the use of color and 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 that sort of stuff. But um, I mean, it's sort of the opposite of the Wizard of Oz, which you know you also mentioned. You know, in Wizard of Oz, Dorothy starts in you know the land of black and white and ends up in this fabulous world of color. Um, whereas here, obviously, as you've mentioned, heaven is the one that's in in um, black and white, and and earth is the one with its gorgeous colour. Um, I mean, it's it's great that that moment where you see, you know, David Niven on the plane. You see these gorgeous like orange flames, and there's just a body just like you know in front of him, and he's like, you know, we've been shut up. We're not gonna we're not gonna make it back. And it's and it's just oh, the minute it starts, it's great. And and I love the fact that. Um, I mean, heaven looks gorgeous. I mean, you know, you've got these statues, this big sort of escalator. Um, I just, I mean, it looks, it looks great, but but also you can entirely understand why he doesn't want to go there because, you know, if the woman he loves isn't there, it may as well be grey and dull and, you know, for, you know, as that. I mean, you know, the, the the bit where the trial takes place that I suppose you could call it a courtroom, um, you know, it looks great, but you know, you you can understand it doesn't have kind of the heart and warmth of you know this um, this sort of you know the, I don't know where he's staying, but you know you've got this you know this beach and you know um, this wonderful house full of all these books and stuff. You can really understand why he wants to survive, um, and it's so heartwarming. And and you know, I think both of you have talked at length about the um, the technical side. And you know how it how it was made. You know, I don't really think I can add much more to that. But um, just in terms of you know how it really makes you feel, it's such a good film. It's it, it, it's just you leave it really. There's a nice, warm, soft feeling inside, and 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 as well, just the the context in which it was made. You know, by this point, you know the war is over. Um, obviously, you know you you can probably see why they made it about you know a, a british pilot and and an american you know volunteers come over because you know probably by this time you know there's been plenty of americans and british people who'd been you know in relationships and maybe people weren't very happy with that and you know the kind of war that had brought them together had ended so you know what's going to are they going to drift apart and you've got um this uh, american character in heaven who obviously has a, a vendetta against the british but, um you know he was there in the 1700s and 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 it's 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 a very clever film because it is i don't want to say it's propaganda but it's obviously very much trying to sort of keep the two countries together um and in the hands of lesser directors 
that could have come across as very sort of preachy and very like we're better off together folks and you know even even David Niven you know where we you know he's got this um posh you know to say oh I'm sorry chaps and all that sort of that sort of voice you know it in the hands of lesser directors it very much could have come across as right okay you know you want to get this political message across right we get it but it's very very well made because it doesn't come across like that at all it very much comes across as here are two people brought together by a quirk of fate um you know and they're you know they're determined to stay together and it's it's just it's so wonderful more than probably any other film on on this list it's the one that really you finish it and go that's so good it's so good. You, you know, I could honestly, it, it, I mean, again, I, I, it, it's just great. It, it, I know I know that could be said of, you know, other films on this list. And, you know, again, not to reveal too much about the list. This isn't number one on my list, but it's the one that I think really makes me just smile more than any of the others. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's, it's just, it's absolutely wonderful. I love it. There's so much... There's so much in it, you know, and, and even, you know, you, I think back a bit, you know, the bit where they say, you know, the, the jury has to be Americans. And, um, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to say it's the most progressive film ever made, but, but it is very progressive in the sense that they say, well, we've got, you know, an Italian American and, uh, you know, a Chinese American and a uh, French American. Oh, I can't, I can't remember, but, but, you know, they're basically saying, you know, and you've got all the the soldiers from all these different armies, um, you know, all the different nations of the world, and you know, here they. And it's just, oh, it's so, it's so wonderful. It's it's brilliant. I love it. Fantastic. It was great to hear such enthusiasm for it. So there you go. That's a matter of life and death. Just to add a few more things to a matter of life and death. It's an incredibly cinematically inventive film. You have a shot of a man falling asleep, and the camera's viewpoint is inside his eye. You see his eyelid close, and that's the end of the shot. Uh, in terms of other cinematically creative elements of the film, it opens with a shot of the universe that then pans into Earth. You get the shot of the channel with fog roaring over it, then you're into the plane. When you see Peter Carter jump from the plane, you get this incredible image of him falling through the fog, then you see his body washed up on the beach, and then there's this miraculous, and I will use the phrase miraculous, transition to heaven, where you just hear this ticking, solid noise, this dun, 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 dun. everything's black and white and it's just perfection it's one of the most immaculate films ever made so that's the effuse praise that we've given for uh, a matter of life and death a favorite of pretty much everyone who ever sees that film noah keat was on the podcast a while ago he's written a whole article on one how, how it's one of his favorite films um he includes that in his list of his 10 favorite films it's great now the next film we watched was Shadow of a Doubt. It's one of the lesser known Hitchcock films, but it was his personal favorite. It covers the story of Uncle Charlie, this relative that's beloved by his entire family who returns home to Santa Rosa in California. Everyone's happy. It's a good old family reunion, but there's a twist. And the twist is, of course, that Uncle Charlie is a vicious, demented serial killer uh, known as the Merry Widow Murderer. It's a tense film. It's a brilliant film. Teresa Wright's performance in it is incredible. I will always back Teresa Wright as being a fantastic actress. She's in Best Years of Our Lives as well, and she's amazing in it. Shadow of a Doubt is a real favorite Hitchcock film of mine. I was really glad to show it to you too. 
what did you both think starting with you nick oh well it's it was different from what i was expecting um but i nonetheless have very much enjoyed it um yeah it's it it, it, it there's some great moments in it um it, it's probably not one of my most favorite of, of the ones that we watched but there's some very good moments in it there's uh there's, there's a great bit where um and again spoilers um so there's two men that they're investigating but they don't know which one is the actual murderer and there's a bit where they reveal that the other suspect who is actually innocent um has has died and they close the case because they think oh well he must have been guilty and you're just left sitting there you know and just going no he's gotten away with it and and um Oh, it's so it's so good. This this um, really men Uncle Charlie, what a menacing performance! And you're just kind of on your edge, you, you know, the edge of your seat the whole time, thinking, you know, oh, I can't get, you know, he can't get away with it. Um, and it's just this. Weirdly, this is probably the film that I've got the least to say about, um, and that makes it sound like potentially, oh, it's a very uninteresting film. It isn't. There's lots to really like about this film, and it's a very enjoyable experience. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, yeah, it's it's just very it's it's a very it's a very difficult film for me to talk about because something like a matter of life and death, um, it you know, it's got a lot of heart to it, um, and also this film, not that it's not technically impressive. I mean, it is, but it, it doesn't particularly stand out to me it's one of the kind of the least memorable films that we watch and that makes it sound like a bad thing it isn't i mean it's a very good film um really um but yeah it's it i don't know it's a very it's a very interesting experience it's a sort of film where i'm glad i watched it i really enjoyed watching it i'd watch it again but also i don't particularly have any desire to revisit it soon i'll just give a brief word on it before i cut to sam um i think what i love about the film and i think i understand why you might struggle to understand uh, to describe it a bit just because it is quite a deceptively simple plot it's the uncle comes into town he's a murderer he's got to hide it from his family his niece finds out and there's, there's a big confrontation whereas with other hitchcock films like maybe vertigo or someone there's so much depth to it nick what did you want to say uh, I think I oh, well. I think I. I think I actually that you saying that has kind of has unlocked something, which is, I think this is the film that I struggle to describe the most. Is because I think pretty much every other film on this list does something better. Now this film, I don't think is the worst film on the list uh, on this list, but I feel like you know if I wanted something that's you know horrific and dark, I'd watch Peeping Tom. If I wanted something that um, you know will will make me laugh, you know, we'll we'll get to you know a couple of the comedies. If I wanted something that's got a lot of heart, I'll watch Matter of Life and Death. This is a film which I don't think, in any sort of measure, would top the list. It would never be at the bottom. But if I was ranking these films according to you know. Um, technical ability or how it made me feel or you know any of those emotions it would never be at the top of the list and I think that that's that's the problem for me is that um 
out of all of them, this is the one to me that it's not the most impressive looking. It's not the most emotional. And, and it makes it sound like I'm being really critical on this film. That's not my intention. It's it's the most sort of um, jack of all trades, master of none of all of these films. And that that's my thought. That's my thought on it. And that sounds really harsh. And I really did enjoy this film. I really did like it. You know, please don't think that I dislike this film. I, I think it's great. But it's just the most kind of, yeah, it was all right. And that's it. That That's my thought on it, basically. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, but but that's it. I, I'd say it's really good, but I'd struggle to say any more than that. Now, I think that there's a lot to say about it. Because what I was going to say is that with other Hitchcock films, like, say, Vertigo or something, there's very obviously a lot of subtext going on. And I can understand why, especially on a first watch with Shadow of a Doubt, you might just think it's a pretty simple story. It's done well, whatever. What I love about it is that really what Hitchcock is doing is he's doing a parody, a really dark, subversive parody of Frank Capra films. And what he's doing is he's looking at this nation, America, just about to enter World War II. I think the film came out, was it, 40, was it 43, 41? This is early 1940s. It's just about to enter World War II. 43, I think. 43, so it's just entered World War II. He's looking at this nation of white picket fences, this white you know, middle-class suburban America, and he's deconstructing it and he's savagely ripping it apart. Whereas his films like Strangers on a Train are just a straight-up adventure story, it's all about externality in films like that. It's the evil man comes in, you have the evil man warping the people's lives, the evil man goes. What I love about Shadow of a Doubt is that the evil man is right there in the family home. This isn't pulling over into the Bates Motel in the middle of the night and getting stabbed. This is Uncle Charlie being someone you've known and loved your entire life. Having him right there in your living room, your family love him. You know he's a murderer, but you can't say anything because even though it would save more people, it would rip your family apart. I think that's the real struggle of the film and that's the real tension. And just to add something more to it, Uncle Charlie's a nihilist. There's the scene where he says, if you rip apart someone's house, if you look into someone's house, you'd be disgusted by what you see. There's a scene where he goes to the bank where the nice genial father's working. And he says to him, you're cheating people in this job. You're stealing money. And he's just he's he's just taking apart all of these sacred elements and sacred institutions of American life, deconstructing them and pointing out the hypocrisies of American life. So really, by the end of it, you kind of like him. I mean, I think he's an he's an evil killer. But also you think, go on. It's so subversive and dark that watching a film from the 40s that's just ripping apart American life. It's wonderful. I love it. It's one of my favorite Hitchcocks. I can see that both of you are very eager to say stuff. I'll go to Sam just because he hasn't spoken yet. Sam, what do you think? I entirely agree. Uh, and it's kind of like, it's an interesting watch. It, I think structurally, it's quite similar to Vertigo. Where I, it's kind of, this is what I like. Because I really do like Hitchcock. And I think that this is... Because uh, the first... I remember when we were watching this at the beginning, where sort of just this... Uh, the sub, like the, the suburban family was just being set up. You sit there and like I was a little bit bored to begin with. I was like sitting there just like okay, who are these characters? Why? What's happening here? What's the point of this? Um, but it's he 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 can play with tone extremely well. Um, and yeah, I mean everything you've said about kind of what it's all about and what it all you know all that stuff. I think it's excellent for that. I think that every single uh, twist in it is legitimately very shocking. <laughs> like, l legitimately so. There's so many moments. Like, this is probably where I would disagree with Nick and be like, I actually do think it's the most sort of suspenseful, tense 
probably the strongest, like, well, no, not the, it's, it's, it's no, it's the most suspenseful but one that we watched by far. And in terms of just getting, like, ugh, sort of emotions out of you, it's like, I think it's, it's, this is probably where Hitchcock uh, excels. But yeah, no, but it's like, um, yeah, you know, when we were talking about it, uh, we compared it to Blue Velvet, uh, uh, the David Lynch film, and how they both sort of subvert this, these suburban ideas and start to take it, take it into very dark places. Like, this is very different from that, though, because for Blue Velvet, it's like, they both have sort of the same structure, where it's like you begin in this nice, happy suburban life, and then with Blue Velvet, it's like you go down the decapitated ear, and then you just enter a world that's like very much just like a nightmare. Like for this one, like you're the sub- we stay in the suburban setting for basically all of it, um, or if not the setting, like we stay in the town. Like it all feels extremely local. Um, but yeah, it's the presence of of the uncle, um, and how he's yeah he's despite it's it's his charm that uh, really unsettles you because he is immensely charming and in, in like another world he could have just been a straight up handsome like James Stewart uh, type in this movie. Um, but so I think that, I think the it's a movie that's kind of incredibly hard to second guess, even if you kind of think you already know where it's going. Like, even if you're like, you kind of sit there and think, oh, he's the murderer. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that detail kind of like, you, you assume this. Then the film kind of messes with you because it knows you're assuming this. Like, I think the, it's a there's a few films we'll get to the ranking but it's a there's a few films where I tentatively gave them like basically like ooh maybe nines because I was like I watched it and I was like it's a it's it's a really great movie but I think if I watched it again I'd have a different reaction once we I think once in the time between us watching it and now I've actually come to appreciate it an awful lot more like now I mean I have no idea where I put in the Hitchcock rankings. Um, but I think it'd be like high. Um, I think the only thing that kind of didn't hit correctly, like, is probably the ending. Like, I think the ending is built up to extremely well. I think that all the sort of stakes going into the ending are, you know, set up like, you know, masterfully. But like, by the <laughs> when the last thing actually happens, maybe a bit like in Versco as well. When like the final thing actually happens on screen, you're just like, oh, <laughs> well there you go, and like it ends, and you're like, oh well, okay, sure. But again, but it's like Vertigo where it's like it's built up perfectly too, and and I I liked it a lot more here than I did in Vertigo with that ending. Um, but no, but apart from that though, I think if I watched it again, I would really just like be like in love with it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think the, personally for me, I think the ending's really strong. I mean, I, I can understand why you might get a little bit anticlimax from it, but I think on rewatch, I like that it ends that way. It's so sudden. I think that works. And Joseph Cotton's performance mm-hmm. as Uncle Charlie is stunning. Nick, what do you want to say? Well, the only thing, the only thing I, I was really going to add to what Sam said is I think I had sort of um, the, the opposite opinion, which is on first viewing. I wasn't particularly keen on the ending. I thought, what? That's how they're ending. And actually thinking about it since, I've come to appreciate the ending a lot more. Um, mm. I, was, I, was just, I was just looking up um, while you were talking. 
Um, I was I was thinking about freedom from want, which was that Norman Rockwell, um, you know, the painting, and you got the the family at dinner and the bringing the food. You know, it's very you know um, this sort of well. I I was thinking, you know, when when was that when was that um, when was that made? It was 1943, so the same year as this film came out. Um, and I I sort well, I was a bit critical of the film earlier. So, but I but I will say that subversive um side to it which you were talking about frank i i do adore that i i will say i i love that i love the fact that in the same year that that norman rockwell painting came out that hitchcock was basically going yeah but what if there's a murderer in that painting basically basically that's <laughs> what it feels like he's saying it, it, it makes me feel like that's what hitchcock's saying so that's what i love and i think it's a movie i really enjoy for that reason it's like, what if you got like the ideal, you know, for the time, you know, this ideal nuclear American family. And what if one of them was a murderer who basically kept getting away with it? And you look at it and, you and, and it, you know, this, this, um, this idea of, you know, family is the ideal. But actually, in this case, it's not the ideal because the desire to protect, you know, the family unit and the family reputation is he's basically gonna get a woman killed, you know, if they if they don't stop him? Um, it's so dark and and like a like it's 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 not only horror in the sense of he's a murderer, but horror in the sense of you know this thing which was promoted, you know, pro politically and socially as the ideal can actually have these really horrible like consequences. That's great. I love it for that reason. Um, but I still, I, I still feel like it's a film which overall I just, I just kind of struggle to to really say anything more than that. Really, I, I think, I think it probably suffered for me coming after Peeping Tom, which is a bit unfair because Peeping Tom came out what seventeen years afterwards. Um, but yeah, I think it's for me. It's just a film which. It's really good. I mean, you know, I, I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking I don't like the film. I do. It's brilliant. Um, it's just a film that I think every individual element a different film does better. And that 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 is that's that that's it for me. It's a really good film. It was a very fun watch, you know. It's 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 very it's very, very good. It it's just I think everything it does well. Maybe apart from, I don't know, but yeah, it's it's a film I I think I I would struggle to really describe at, at length more than you know. It's a film I can't really say more about than I already have done, um, but it's good. It's very good. Well, there you go. Shadow of a Doubt. It's it's subversive. It's shocking. It's one of Hitchcock's very best films. It deserves to be talked about. I think alongside Psycho and so on. It's fantastic. And again. I'm really glad that I was able to show it to both of you because you hadn't seen it before. That was really nice. Um, so that's Shadow of a Doubt. The next film that we watched was With Nell and I. Now, this is an interesting one because I watched With Nell and I for the first time when I was about 13 with my dad. And since then, it's always been one of my very favourite films. I find it hilarious. I'm almost wetting myself watching it. It's one of the funniest films I've ever seen. It's one of my favourite British films. I could get in depth about it, and I'm sure we will. Um, but the one thing that I would just love to emphasize more than anything else is that it's a film about how genuinely bleak a lot of aspects of living in Britain are. It's cold and wet and miserable. Going on British holidays is really disappointing. And it's about sort of, it's about alcoholism and it's about unemployment. It's about 
the rough side of living in Britain, and yet it finds humour in it. And I think that appeals to me very strongly. So, because Nick was talking last about Shadow of a Doubt, should we hear what Sam's opinions are on with Nell and I? Okay, right. Um, it's, I have, yes. Kind of difficult to pin down, honestly. Um, it's like, I think, the, I think if I had to summarise my opinions on, on with Nell and I, I'd say it's a pretty good movie, but it's a no mean. It's in no way anywhere close approaching a great movie. Like I think that it's. I'm trying to think of what I think is actually very good about it. Like I, I understand sort of why people would quite like it because Paul McGann and Richard E. Grant are both pretty remarkable in it. Um, like they're both, you know. They're both great. Um, and the script, again, we're going to have these problems later with Annie Hall, where it's like, I think it's witty in a way, but it's not a sort of witty where it sort of directly appeals to me, um, which I, I know you two would both say about Annie Hall, which we'll get onto. And we have the exact opposite problem, uh, where it is appealing to me and it's sort of not appealing to you guys. So that might just be an indication of sort of how um our tastes are actually slightly different uh comedy wise um but yes no but i think it's 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 a good film like i think that the the jokes are still quite funny like i think that the i think the the stuff that you guys like like about it i also do quite like but it's honestly it just it's like uh it's just like a show you'd see like on the bbc it's just, it's just like, it's just like if, if it was on, on like a Saturday night, if it was like re-engineered to be like a sitcom or something, um, I would sit there and I think, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I'd be like, I, I, I'm, I'm happy I watched it. Like it's, it's, it's like a particularly good episode of like, you know, Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> but, but like, there's, there's, there's very little in there. That makes me think oh this is a uh a great movie like it really could have been i know that we we have talked about this before and i think you guys have made sort of arguments that it's like about thatcherism uh and sort of everything they sort of say about the late 60s uh is reflective of what would later happen with thatcherism etc etc which i i can see but i don't feel like i i it, it's almost like we watched two different movies <laughs> it's like I can see why you'd argue that but personally watching it it didn't quite translate but yes I think it's still a, a, a good movie though I think it's still a movie with two very funny performances well I mean two very funny lead performances with everyone else being quite funny as well um and I think the music's very good um but sort of outside of that it's like I almost just wouldn't have much to say about it i'd just be like uh i'd just be say i just say i'd be happy i watched it and then move on that's not one that linger in my head for any sort of real reason i'll acknowledge that i'm very biased towards loving it um because of when i saw it i think that's the theme that we're talking about a lot when you saw it mm -hmm. how it appeals to you nick what did you think about it well it was interesting because i think i went in setting my expectations a little bit too high but nonetheless, I still still really enjoyed it. I thought it was very, very 
I was about to say funny, but I think witty is is the word. The word the the was there wasn't a lot of times in this movie that I burst out laughing or even you know laughed out loud at all really. But for most of the film, there was a kind of smirk on my face, and I think that that is that's what I particularly enjoy about this film. I think kind of that sort of wit is very difficult to do. Um, a lot of the time. And this is not just in film, it can apply to, you know, books as well. People trying to attempt that sort of wit can often feel a bit smug and a bit pretentious. Um, but here, it really, it really works for me. There's, there's, I mean, there are, there are like individual lines that had me like bursting out loud. Um, but there's just moments throughout. And I think it's, um, it's a very, it's very good because it's, you know, there's some bits that are very, you know, funny and, and um, you know, that make you laugh. And there's other bits which, you know, are a bit sad, really, as well. And I, I like it. It's, it's, it's very much a film about, you know, just these two people living their lives. You know, they've got ups and downs. You know, they keep getting into um, silly scrapes and, you know, they do ridiculous stuff. But that is, you know, that is what life is all about. And uh, I love the fact that you've got, you know, Paul McGann, Rich D. Grant, you know, and they're these people who um, I think we can assume are, you know, somewhat, you know, from well-off backgrounds. Um, we, you know, discover, you know, um, right at the end of the film, they both are pretty, you know, their characters, that is, not them. Yeah, <laughs> Richard Grant and Paul McGann are good actors, but the characters they're playing are also good actors as well. And I love the fact that, you know, they they could have it all, basically. They could basically take the world by storm and yet instead they're getting drunk you know they live in this filthy flat um and and you know they've spent this the 60s you know this decade which you know has got this reputation as being you know um you know people could do anything you know it's the Beatlemania and you know yeah you know that if you if you lived in Britain the 60s that you could basically do any you know you could basically do anything and here's the reality you know oh it's damp it's cold um, you know, the stuff goes horribly wrong all the time. And it's just, it's just, it, it, it's just a film which I really, really enjoy. It puts a smile on my face. It, it doesn't leave me with the same feeling of warmth that, say, A Matter of Life and Death did. But it's a film which I just think, oh, you know, and I don't want to say it, but it's almost like if you just like kind of switch off the overly critical part of your brain and just see this as this is just two people driving and wandering around Britain, getting drunk <laughs> and doing silly stuff like that. I mean, Oli, uh, before I hand over to, to back back to you, um, I will say this. Sam, you compared it to an episode of Only Fools and Horses, but I like Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what do you think? Yeah, but I feel like this kind of, yes, this kind of backs up kind of what I, how I describe it, where it's like, it's a good movie, but it's not a great movie. Like, it's like, oh, you turn off the, that bit of your brain. And it's like, well, that's the bit of the brain that I like using during movies. <laughs> it's like, that's what I think, that's what I think um, distinguishes it. Like, I think what I, this is a point, okay, I'll say this point, I'll see how you guys respond to this. I think it's a film that's in almost entirely sort of dependent on its actors. I think if you replaced Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann with two people who weren't as like inherently charming, then all, a lot of the appeal of the 
film would be gone. This like this is the same for most comedies, to be fair. But then most comedies aren't great. Like there's like there's very few comedies that really actually that's probably not true. But like um it was all at least for like good comedy, it's almost entirely reliant on the actors. Um but yeah, great comedies are always kind of other stuff as well. Um for this I'd be like Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an actor's piece really. Um and I think it's about as good as it's about as good as a lot of good British sitcoms. And like a lot of British sitcoms are good. But like this is I would say this is about that level. Like I, I wouldn't say at any point it sort of pushes beyond it to be like a exemplar uh piece of what British cinema is capable of and everything. Like if you want to make the case about like sort certain television genres, uh like if you want to make a case of like, oh, the late noughties uh sitcom boost in Britain is a great period and it represents like this 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 in television, uh like Peep Show, IT Crowd, in between is all these things. There's a case there probably to be made. Um or or anything of that sort. Um but I for actually a great piece of eighties cinema, um, I really just don't think it fill, falls into that. I think it's just it's something that I probably would have liked it more as a TV show. <laughs> That's probably where I'll leave it. I will probably like it a lot more as a TV show, probably akin to something like Only Fools and Horses. Fools and Horses. The the plot to it is deceptively simple because there's barely anything to the plot. I mean, the plot is there are these two actors, they're unemployed, it's with Nail and a character called Marwood. He's not called Marwood in the film, it's just in the script. Um, but there's these two characters, they're unemployed, they're living in this filthy flat in London, and they decide to go on holiday because they're so miserable. That's the plot to the film. I mean, that's that's basically it. I mean, I could get into details. I could get into the fact that Uncle Monty, played by Richard Griffiths, probably best known for being the uncle in Harry, the Harry Potter films, is one of the funniest characters I've ever seen in any film. And he's one of the most quotable characters in any film. A character that has lines like, um, there's a certain je ne sais quoi un very special about a firm young carrot. I mean, I can't get over lines like that. And I can't get over the line where he says, I never handle raw meat. As a youth, I used to weep in butcher's shops. But for me, <laughs> what does that even mean? What does that even mean? It's just really funny. I mean, like he's he's a gay character, and a lot of his dialogue is kind of very, very thinly veiled references to his homosexuality, and I find it very funny. I I do. I just I, it makes me laugh. I mean, like I could do a whole TED talk about why I love this film, why it appeals to me. A lot of it is the fact that I just watched it when I was thirteen with my dad, and it made me laugh. And it's a film I, I sort of have that connects me to him. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about a lot of films in they connect you to people. And this is a film that will forever connect me to my dad. What I love about it is that it's a film about the sixties and that all of the emphasis is on the fact that it is a sixties set film. It's about the demise of the counterculture. That's what Donald Fagan says from Steely Dan. He wrote, he wrote this whole thing when he did a criterion top 10 on it, where he said it's the best film about the demise of the sixties counterculture. What I love is that it, it's a film about Thatcher's Britain, even though it's based on a real story of what happened to Bruce Robinson in the 60s when he was an actor living in London with his friend Vivian McCarroll. It's such a film about Thatcher's Britain. It's a there is no such thing as society film. Sam, I will come to you in a minute, but I will develop this point first. It's a no such thing as society film because there are these two people who are terrible for each other. They are this codependent monster. They feed each other's alcoholism. As long as they're with each other, they won't ever get work. And they're just orbited by these lonely, isolated people 
who live these hollow, shallow, terrible lives. His uncle Monty, who's this tragic figure, he does bad things in the film, very bad towards the end. But I think the last thing that Marwood says about him is just he's such a sad, lonely, pathetic man. He's a tragic figure. He's wanted to fall in love, but it's always been denied to him. And you, you feel the sadness of him. This this comedy, but it's balanced by such tragedy. The fact that characters like Danny, who's this almost psychotic drug dealer that just randomly turns up to their apartment, and it was the, the main inspiration for Superhands, the character from Peep Show, just shows up, gives these strange monologues, then leaves. But he's almost like a prophet of his time. Towards the end of the film, when he says, we failed to paint the 60s black, he says, this is the greatest decade ever known to humanity, and now it's ending. They're selling Beatles wigs in Woolworths is what he says, you know. It, it's a film about the demise of an era and about the birth of a new era of loneliness. I think that's what the film is about in its own way. It's about the fact that this friendship has to end. It's so terrible that it must end, but in ending, it's kind of doomed one partner and allowed the other to succeed. Paul McGann's gone off to get a job. He'll be all right. You know he'll be okay. But as the film ends, big spoiler alert, with Nell's left alone, reciting Shakespeare to wolves. It's a strange ending, but I love it because you see that he has talent. As Nick says, he's a talented actor, but he's never going to get there. You just know in that moment he's lost forever. There's a speech that Danny gives towards the end where he says, if you're holding onto a balloon, you have to, you have to face a decision. You keep, you let go of the balloon, you get off, or you keep holding onto the balloon, but then can you keep your grip? And I don't think with Neil can keep his grip. He's going to go up for a while, then he's gone forever. I think that's his character. It's a film about Thatcher's Britain because it's a film about the fact that there is no platform to support these people. There is no net to support them. They're out there on their own. It's this cruel, inhospitable, damp, wet, miserable country where really the only way that you can succeed is to cut all ties and get off and find a job and just abandon your friends to a life of misery. It's a dark message, but it, it works. I think it's a really fantastic film. I think it's the best bit of British cinema that came out of Thatcher's Britain. And it's this devastating portrait of where Britain once was and what it is now. I love it. It, it, it just does everything for me. Sam? Um, again, these are kind of like points why I think it's a good movie, not a great movie. Like These things are, these things are there, but it will actually taking the transition to actually arguing it's like great. Like, I think the problem I'd probably say I have with it um, in that sort of discussion is that even though, yeah, it's broadly, like, metaphorically about Thatcherism, um, like, that's something that you can clearly sort of see in what's arguing about the 60s. The problem with it being sort of metaphorically about Thatcherism, though, is that in no other ways is it really about Thatcherism. Like, I don't think that, like, like the 80s is already a pretty bad decade for, like, these sort of, like, uniquely aesthetic movies uh like you know it's very hard to find like great 80s auteurs um outside of like a few who sort of lingered about from new hollywood or whatever um but like in the fact that it, like it's a film that's metaphorically about the thatcher years despite being about the 60s it's something that i really wanted to see a lot more out of and there's probably lots of ways they could have done that they probably could have done this through a lot of explicit idiosyncrasy and idiosyncratic things being like apparent like i don't know what exactly they would have been but some ways of actually like uh like pointing to the audience and being like this isn't actually like we're saying this is the late 60s but really come on now this is like a dream of the late 60s that we have right now in our dreary thatcherite britain uh like it's it's so on that sort of level like um it's sort of one where again this is why i still think it's a good movie 
Like, I still think that stuff that people like about it is very much there. I still think that the general sort of message of it and everything um, is, 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 is functional. But I think to really give it a step to being like a great piece of 80s cinema, like there really could have been more into it than being sort of a pastiche of like what the late 60s kind of looked like. Because cause again, because the late 60s, early 70s um, was like the most interesting like filmmaking period, like, you know, arguably ever. Like, you know, you look at these films from the late 60s and the early 70s and kind of a lot in the 70s as well. And like, they're so interesting for so many different reasons. And it's all kind of there in the style. Um, and even ones that we've kind of looked at like now, like if you like this one, if you're just thinking about it as an aesthetic product, there's not really much to point to where it's like, this is pointedly like the 80s. And this could only be made in the 80s, uh, apart from the fact that it's Richard D. Grant and Paul McGann. So again, but, and it might be another reason maybe why I think it might have worked better as a TV show. Just because like, like I think TV is one of the avenues or I think that sort of post like I don't know 80s or whatever uh like these new sort of these new things have started to just develop naturally um so like if, if this was a TV show um maybe something a bit like our friends in the north or something like that like our friends in the north I don't think has this problem like I don't like I know it's set sort of beyond periods but like it's a it's very much of its time is the impression that I've got like for this it's like it was made in the 80s sure and it's broadly sort of about the 80s but it's not really apparent in a lot of the things that make great films sort of great but again this doesn't mean that it's like bad like it's actually it's 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 still very good like it's still you watch it and you think this is very funny uh, and if i just threw this on for a laugh i'd, I'd enjoy it but like and so but that's sort of the level that i think it's at like i don't think it's it's a standout work like I, I am sympathetic to a lot of the points you've made there i mean i do think it's a flawed film i think there are some bits where it's a bit jarring i think the direction could be a bit better i think it is just so overwhelmingly dreary and bleak that sometimes i'm just like oh i don't really want to watch that right now but it still just appeals to me on this level it is a comedy film as you say it is very funny i think you can stick it on for a laugh but it's a rare comedy film that ends with a moment so poignant the ending of the film isn't for a laugh. That final speech with Nell Gibbs isn't funny. It's it's bleak because you see that his talents are being wasted. I mean, you talk about how the film could have more references to Thatcherism. I mean, obviously it's not set in that era, so it's got to be quite a bleak and metaphorical with how it does it. How about when they leave their apartment as they're driving away, you see that wrecking ball smashing the building next to them. This is a changing London. It's being, it's not housing people anymore. It's being changed into a financial capital. That's what um, Marwood is watching out of the window. And he's just stoned. He looks hazed. He's drunk. He's out of it. He's just staring up at this new Britain that he can't fit into. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Yes, Sam. A lot, a lot of British comedy kind of is that bleak though. Like even if you kind of look at, like mostly television, even television sort of of this time, like, I don't know, Blackadder goes forth. The ending of that is incredibly bleak. Yeah, that's and good even point. something like Faulty Towers, where it's still like sort of a farce, like there's sort of like a hidden bleakness throughout all of it. Like I think that it's it's not something I, I point to as being kind of just here. I think you could if you wanted to argue like the specific way in which this does this was influential for later stuff like Peep Show yeah. and the in-betweeners and stuff like that. That I probably agree with you. I'd probably say it was I'd probably take your point there, but I, I think that just the general sort of atmosphere of it 
Like, I think that's a mainstay in like so much British comedy. Nick, um, what do you? Yeah. But, well, I was I was gonna say, Sam. Um, do you think it has uh, many similarities to the young ones, which was um, also in the eighties? You know, the Rick Mail uh, about a couple of people getting up to chaotic things in a house, and ends on a rather bleak note. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe, I haven't seen it. I mean, I mean, it's an it's an interesting thing. But, um, obviously, you were talking a lot about television, and I just thought, yeah, actually, the um, obviously. You know they have their differences, but um, a lot of similarities between with Nell and I and the young ones, I suppose. But um, mm. yeah, <laughs> so I'd have to see it, but yeah, I think if I just had to summarize my thoughts on it, I'd be like, I probably would have liked it a bit more as a TV show, but in terms of what it actually is, it's still a pretty good comedy film, but nowhere near the heights of being a great comedy film. Get in the back of the van, <laughs> <laughs> that line's funny, it made you laugh, it's a good film. I'm very defensive. That doesn't, that doesn't make it Citizen Kane, though. <laughs> you know what? I, I might actually prefer it to Citizen Kane. Sorry. Okay, well, there Citizen, we go. Citizen Kane's more influential and more important, but just in terms of personal preference, I feel, it just hits me. It, I, I get emotional watching it. I love it. I, I, mm. I'm, I'm biased. I'm so biased towards it. It was a formative mm. experience in film watching for me. I, I, I always love it. 